This is Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, a podcast and radio program presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. Most any contemporary musical style can trace its roots back to the blues. Time Signatures explores the blues and its musical connections with captivating interviews, lively discussions, and news from the world of the blues. And now, here he is, your host, Jim Irvin. And thank you very much, Parker. We are in studio today. Time Signatures, I'm your host, Jim Irvin, along with my trusty friend and uh, boon companion, Dedalian Lowry. The guy that does the moral support. <laughs> moral support and pushing the buttons, making sure everything comes together, right? That's exactly it. That's what I do. <laughs> and we are so happy uh, to be joined once again by Mike Scorey and Jim Alfredson. We're glad to have you back, guys. Thanks for having us back. We haven't decided when we're going to air these. Like we said, you know, we just number them as we go along. It's kind of nice because you can just drop one in here and drop it's one like, in there. Like writing a set list, you know. Yeah, I absolutely. I don't, I don't I've got to ask Jim, what is going through your brain when you're hearing the theme song roll? I'm glad you asked that question. Because I'm looking at you, the, the look <laughs> on your face. I'm like, what's going through that man's brain right now? What's funny is, I'm going to get musical here for a second. Okay. What's funny is, so we go to the five chord, ding, and then the four chord was a minor four. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. Like, did I write it that way? I guess I must have. Okay, so we should clarify that you're the one on the keys there. Yeah, and yes. I, co- I co-wrote that with Freddie. I must have, at some point, now it was is probably it, just a standard. Is it is it possibly an edit in the song? No. No. Just don't remember playing it that way. But yeah, it makes oh, sense. Oh, you don't remember playing it that way. But I'm, we, we, I must have. Well, and it, it sounds it really cool. It creates an extra tension. Yeah, it's really cool. And you definitely had that questioning look on your face as I'm watching. Like, <laughs> I'm looking over at you and I'm going, what is he thinking I'm about? Thinking, I'm thinking, and wow. And I knew you were you were listening to it going, what I, am, what's going on there? I'm thinking, wow, when I wrote that, let's see, 20 years ago, I was hipper than I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you, you know, were. What's, what's cool, though, is I watched, you, watched both of you while that was playing and you're both kind of like, kind of grooving and jamming and i remember watching uh james when yeah. that was playing the first time yeah. our, for our first episode and he was playing the bass he was yeah. playing the yeah. air bass while this was going he's like just just jamming away and having a good time at it i haven't heard that song probably in 15 years so well the ironic thing is the dalian asked me to come up with a, a, an intro song and i i pulled out my Root Doctor playlist, I have all six of the albums mm-hmm. um, on CD, of course. And then the one is the Yellow Album that uh, was given to me on a flash drive yep. by Marge because you can't find it no. anywhere. Now, what's funny is the Yellow one was recorded live. They opened for, it was somebody pretty big, and they happened to record the set. It was just a two-track recording from the mixer board. Right? Wow. It's pretty good. They took it to Glenn Brown, the genius that he is. Yeah, yeah. He did his magic on it, and it sounds sounds good. And then there were years and years that went by and they didn't record anything. And when I got in the band, I've always been into recording as well mm-hmm. and apprenticed under Glenn Brown and kind of tried to learn his his genius. And uh, I kept pushing the guys like, let's record some, let's write some original songs, let's record some original songs instead of just doing covers all the time. And, you know, they were like, yeah, okay. And then it wasn't until Greg Nagy got into the band that I had kind of a unified front and the two of us were like, this is what we're going to do. Okay. And this is how we're going to do it. And we just kind of like almost forced them into it. And I think the lyrics were all written by Freddie. Freddie's a great lyricist. Oh. 
Yeah. He wrote a lot of the lyrics on all that stuff, and I wrote a lot of the music. Greg and I and James had a good part of it too. And it was a, it was a collaborative effort, but it was really fun to get them finally thinking in terms of writing original material. That's very cool. Well, I wanted to talk about the creative process for your music because both of you write music, you play music. Let's let's start with Jim. Talk about your creative process. What what do you go through when you start putting music together? For me, it's all about rhythm. So I get inspired by either a drum groove or a ostinato figure of some kind, bass line or something like that. And that usually pushes me into a, a certain mood or a certain direction. My biggest hang up for years and years was melody because I, I absolutely love melody. And as someone who studied jazz, I mean, jazz is all about melody. People say it's about improvisation, but improvisation, the best improvisation to me is, is improvising melodies, not just blowing a bunch of notes all over the place. You want something that you can sing along to, you know? So I worked really hard on, on trying to become better at writing melodies, and it's been a challenge, and I'm still working on it. But yeah, for me, the, the initial inspiration is usually something rhythmic. I started actually playing keys when I was little, but then I got into drums for a while, and I played drums for okay. quite some time. So is it the uh, the rhythm and the melody that comes first for you, or do you work with lyrics and then work on the melodies? I've done both. Okay. Sometimes there's something specific I want to talk about, so I'll write some stanzas out, and a lot of times they change once the music's written. You don't want to just shoehorn it in. You want to make it flow. And sure. you know, as someone that loves the blues but also loves different types of music, I'm also looking for a little trick that I can put in, like we were talking about the minor four chord in the intro tune. Or on one of Greg Nagy's records, we did a blues, but we did it in 6-4 instead of 4-4. Four, four. Okay. It's a shuffle. So it's like going one... Extra two beats per bar. Very cool. And it flows great. And it, it and then we I think we put some five in it just to be jerks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> put a 5-4 measure in. But stuff like that, I'm always looking for like a little trick or a little something to bend your ear. Mike, I see you nodding your head over there. Yeah, Let's talk I, about your process. I, I mean, I I might start with a, a vague rhythm, like a type, you know, shuffle, straight beat. Then I go for the lyrics. I have to f figure out how to tell a story about something. And usually I go back in my past and I go, oh, God, remember how crappy I felt that day. I can't really write a story about that, how it really happened. So I write a fake story that tries to find that emotion. Mm -hmm. So then usually the first draft of writing lyrics is like three songs with the words, you know, and then I should try to find a melody and fit them into the, into the measures. Then well, too many words, too many words, too many words. So that's the way I'd like to do it. What about creative blocks? How do you guys deal with those? Um, I just go do something else for a while. And sometimes I'll actually not listen to music for weeks, which is hard to do but it clears the palate and then you can start fresh and, and, and try to whatever, wherever it comes from that inspiration, that cosmic radio wave or whatever it is, you can let that through again. I think it gets blocked by too much consumption. Mike. Um, I work better when I have pressure. Like if I have a month to get something done, it's, you know, it's three days before it's due to do it. <laughs> and the same with writing a song. Oh, I gotta get, the, oh, I gotta get that done. Boom, and then I just have to bolt into it 100 percent until it's done. That's I, I do that. It's not the best way to do things, but I do it in. 
almost everything I do. See, this guy reminds me when I when I was in my writing class, I was one of those people that always would write the the eight page paper in the last 24 hours because I thrive on pressure. Mm. Pressure, and yes. Then, it's like I wake up. Yeah, yeah. There's something about that adrenaline, the vibe yes. that that deadline is looming over you yes. that it pushes some creativity out. At the same time, I thought it was interesting that you said that you stop listening to music. Anything creative I do, uh, very often I've found a great way to start the creative juices is just to allow silence. Mm -hmm. And I will just let things be quiet all around me. And I just thought it was interesting that you would do the same with music. And I can relate to both both concepts, both ideas, and both make sense. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely ways to get creativity going. I I do the same thing sometimes too. Like Where you wait until that deadline until comes the last out minute, and you're like, oh, <laughs> I guess I should work on this now. I, I think that also might be human nature. I'm just guessing. It here. Must, I think <laughs> the funny thing is, that my eldest daughter, she's at Michigan State now. She's a French horn uh, major. She's incredible. And during the pandemic, uh, with the online schooling, she was in an AP psychology class, and they were doing a little section on ADHD, and the teacher put up the the markers of people, you know, the, yeah, you just raised your hand. And it was like nine different <laughs> markers that like, you know, you might have ADHD if Squirrel. you do this, if you do this, if you do this. And and she came downstairs, she was crying. She's like, mom, dad, I think I have ADHD. I think I finally figured out what's wrong with me. We're like, well, there's nothing wrong with you per se, but you just okay. have to learn to use it. Yeah. So she, yeah. she, uh, she figured that out. And then she's at you know Michigan State now, like I said, and she's on a very low-grade medication that she only takes when she really needs to focus. Like, I need to study for this exam. Yeah. I need mm -hmm. to write this paper. I'll take this little bit of medication, and it helps her focus. She said, Dad, it's like... It's like all the different voices in my head, not, you know... No, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, all the different thought processes, all the different threads get turned off, and I can actually just focus on this one thing. My like, son oh, is, wow, what's mm. that like? And she goes, Dad, I think you might have ADHD, too. <laughs> Did you think? <laughs> my, my, son <laughs> described, my son described it as a thousand TVs. Yeah. Huh. And that's, uh, he also has ADHD. She, yeah. says, she said that she did, read a study that 90% of musicians... Have ADHD. Well, like, I guess well, it's it makes good sense. news for me because I am musically inclined, you know. I'm and creative people in general, <laughs> so, so not just musicians, but artists and poets and painters. And it's uh, just part of the process, I think. That's why I like fixing stuff. Yeah. Because it's just, I got to focus on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then, but but my routine is still, my personality is the same. I'll be sitting, oh, I got things. It's been here three weeks. Still don't know why it's not working. <laughs> still don't know why. I got to get into it. And then I'll have to bury into it. Who was it that was like working this. on the amp, and the you found that the speaker was dead? Was it that you? That was mine. Yeah. Yeah, he had a, he had an amplifier and, and ended up it was just the speaker. The amp had fallen on the floor. The speaker cracked in half. Yeah. There you go. The oh. the, 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 or the, the uh, magnet. The magnet. Oh, but, fell off. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing about the mic, the mic we mentioned on the last podcast, that I was fixing a microphone. Here's the problem with that: is that I'll get so hyper focused on that that I can't do anything else. So when I started that microphone repair it was about two o'clock in the afternoon worked on it for a while took a break did some stuff with the kids you know picked daughters up and blah 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 came back to it about five o'clock came upstairs had dinner at six came back down started working on it again got stuck couldn't figure out what was wrong with it decided to go do something else for about two hours meanwhile it's in my brain going mm -hmm. around and around mm -hmm. and around and around i'm looking i'm like seeing schematics in my head like why isn't this working where's this voltage going what blah 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 suddenly 
it's almost like the same inspiration you get when you write a song. All of a sudden, this light goes off. And you're like, right. I should check this. I go and check it. That's the problem. To me, that's the same as writing music, though, because you'll work on it. And you'll sure. get to a point where you're stuck and you're like, I don't know how to th- go where I'm supposed to go this next verse or this next chord or something like that. And so you just let it sit for a while, let your brain chew on it in the background. And yeah. then all of a sudden, oh, I should do this. And sometimes it takes hours. Sometimes it takes days. Sometimes it takes weeks. Certainly. You have to let it resolve. I don't know if you've, you've probably had this one where you, you write something, you write some lyrics. For me, it's like the lyrics and they don't, you know, they don't fit. Yeah. You know it. Yet you're so, man, I was kind of cool the way I said that. Or like the words, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're, just, you're sold on it. So yeah. you like force, kind of, I don't know if I force the melody and force the words close here. You figure out a way to try to cheat it. But in the end, you go, you know, that I knew that line was a problem. I knew yeah. it was a problem. And, yeah, and you have to get rid of it, right? Yeah. Or, yeah, or, or the, really, the line or, or move it out. Yeah, move yeah. It, yeah or just braid a different line that works yep. or something. You just got to get rid of it. It ain't going to work. Or save it and use it for another song. I guess it was that good. But. The worst part, though, is when you record it on a record thinking I, I solved it. Then you come and hear it a couple oh. years later and you're like, oh, why didn't I oh. fix that? That's terrible. <laughs> My wife is a, a fine artist. She's a painter. And she said... In college, they taught her that a painting is never finished. It's just abandoned. That's, wow. a, that's a good And one. I think music is the same way. It's like at some point, you just have to say, okay, I got to move on and do something else. Because you could just sit there, and especially nowadays with the technology that we have, you know, with computers and, and recording at home and stuff. You could oh, sit you, there yeah. for 20 yeah. years and work on one song and just keep tweaking it, keep tweaking it. Do, oh, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try Do this. either you consider yourself a perfectionist? Uh, I think if I let myself... Mike's go Mike's, down Mike's that path. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, Jim. If I let myself go down that pathway, yes, I've learned how not to do yeah. that because this is not an intervention, by the way. No, no, no. It's, it, again, it's <laughs> no, but it's it's an interesting thing from a musician's perspective, especially with what you just said. Yeah. You know, a, a painting is just abandoned, yeah. and I, a song's got to be the same way. There's it a is. point where you have to accept this is where it's at. Yeah. This is okay. Yeah. This is good. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, <laughs> I, I am on certain things. Certain things just. And they're usually ba- related with the band. Like, especially if I'm singing it, I like a, I like it a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, that's a hard thing. It's hard for me to do it. I mean, I try to do it. I mean, that's why I, I, I played a lot, a lot, because I would try to do it. But then when I'm the singer and then you don't want to be rude, well, right. sometimes you do, but she goes, well, why did you change the beat there? Why, why'd you change it? We changed the chord, you have to change the beat. That's when I get. I completely get that. Yeah, I do. I understand that where you're used to hearing it a certain way. It's just like, you know, when I when I hear something and I go to a concert and somebody just changes it and you go, what? What are you doing? Well, it's because it's live. Yeah, they're improvising. But sure. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. It's, when, if, if this guy's doing a solo, I don't care what they do. You know, <laughs> just, well, I, I would when imagine. I have when I have to bounce from it. That's that's when I like it I, predictable. I am not a musician myself, but I would imagine from a musician's perspective, in order to keep that song fresh for you, you have to kind of change it up a little bit when you're playing it so many times. Yes. Yes and no. I understand where the fans are coming from. If you have a song that the fans adore, mm-hmm. and it's like your one hit wonder or whatever it is, you know, you kind of have to play it the way they want to hear it. Like let's let's talk about Larry McRae and Soulshine. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, he's yeah. been playing that song for oh, yeah. 30 some years mm-hmm. and he plays it the same way every time. I mean, he plays something different solo wise, but sure. the form, the feel is the same. And that's what people want to hear. I don't think you, for those type of things, you don't want to change it up too much. 
when Fred would do God bless the child, yes. it better be just like that. Yeah. 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 And the change up might come at the end of the song because he goes into a, not a scat, but he goes into some mad lib. Yeah. So that might change. And that's plenty of change. I think sometimes we think to change, it takes so much and just a little bit of a thing. It's, it's something new, something different. Sure. Or he might let the guys noodle at the beginning of the song. But when it got to the part, it's where it had to be. Yep. Guys, I want to shift gears just a little bit here. Talk about some of the musicians that you've shared the stage with, some of the, the better known musicians over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Jim, I'll start with you because I can see you're thinking over there. Yeah, I'm trying to. Rem- I have such a horrible memory. Um, but some of the bands that Root Doctor opened up for back in the day, we opened up for Leonard Skinnerd, which was kind of fun. You wouldn't think a blues band would work with a Leonard Skinnerd crowd. They did actually love us. It was a good crowd. And the keyboard player for Leonard Skinnerd was the original guy, Billy Payne. He, oh, wow. He's amazing. He was amazing. I just I sat backstage and watched him. His entire rig was white. He had a white B3, a white grand piano, white wow. synthesizer. It was great. It was awesome. And then we opened up for Cool in the Gang one year, which was mind-blowing. And then uh, I got to hang out with uh, Greg Allman and the Derek Trucks and the Allman Brothers because James Williams from Redactor, his brother, played with the Allman yes. Brothers. Yes, Brother Lamar. So every time they would come to town, he would get us tickets and and one time we went backstage and hung out and Greg Allman was a trip he you know I introduced myself told him I played B3 and he's like that's cool kid and then he just walked off <laughs> <laughs> like cool thanks get but, away kid you bother yeah, me <laughs> um, but once I got on the road I played with a bunch of different people uh, Taj Mahal one time on the Blues Cruise which was a total treat he's one of my favorites of all time got to play with the Holmes Brothers on that cruise Joan Osborne um, I'm trying to think of who else uh in the jazz world, I played with a lot of really cool heavies like David Sanborn, Branford Marsalis. I mean, you know, just through Michigan State when I was there, we got to play with a lot of those guys. And uh, the trumpet player, uh, Brecker Brothers, uh, Michael and uh, what's his brother's name? He's still around. Randy Brecker. Say, boing, boing. Randy Brecker. That's, I have a good story about that. And so he. He came to the Brevard Music Center. I would I was teaching there for a couple summers, thanks to Michael Dees, the professor of jazz trombone at Michigan State. He uh, texted me. He's like, "Hey, Randy's here, and I want I want you to meet him." And for one reason or another, I thought I'd be a smart ass, and I <laughs> went out to meet him. And Michael's like, "Hey, J- you know, Randy, this is Jim Elferson, Jim Elferson, Randy Brecker." I'm like, "Randy Brecker." I'm like, "Man, I've never heard of you." <laughs> and he got this look on his face like who the heck is this guy and I said oh I'm just kidding I'm a really big fan I love your work and I don't think he took it as a joke though he was like kind of stoic like, I think that'd be the time for get away kid you're bothering me yeah, exactly. <laughs> very cool yeah it's been pretty amazing the, the thing I love about playing with that caliber of musician is normally I'm not I'm not nervous about it I just like I, I do what I do and they'll either like it or they won't so I don't really worry about it. Um, but the nice thing about playing with a caliber of that musician is that it forces you to up your own ability. Sure. Like instantly. And that's the best thing about music is, is you want to, you want to get to the point where you can, you know, your instrument enough that you can step outside of your comfort zone a little bit and still be okay. Or as Herbie Hancock would say, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. 
There you go. And push things a little bit. That's what I love about it. Mike, how about you, man? You know, the only time I really did much of that was in the probably the late 70s. Okay. This was well before Root Doctor. But we had a band. It was called Blue Money. And, you know, of course, we thought we were going to the top. And we did, we did a couple of albums, records. We didn't, we didn't have CDs then. Right. And after the second one, we got <laughs> we had some kind of manager. And he finagled us to be the warm-up act. For we went to Van Andel a couple times and uh, the big the big theater downtown Flint places like that. We were always the warm up band for no pay, so then <laughs> usually we would just sit around and go, man, we're better than those guys, man, we're better than those guys. It was a, it was just a completely different thing, yeah. but it was still fun. It was exciting. We didn't want anybody to see that we had no road crew, so we had changes of clothes. We'd wear all black, take our equipment out to the stage, <laughs> and run back off and put on bright colored. We'd play and. Then, Hopefully get cheered. We come and then put our black clothes back out of the run back out and get our equipment. Guys, <laughs> tell me about your favorite performance of all time. Go back in your mind real quick. Oh boy, I, I'm getting a furrowed brow from Michael. I, I can barely remember him. <laughs> there wasn't something that just jumped right out at you. Oh yeah, there there is. And again, it was a different band. I played with a singer her name's Lisa Smith, and we had a four piece band, and I was playing left hand bass. And we did our thing, you know, we were pretty, the band was good. Mm-hmm. So one year we are going to be on the Jazz Fest, and she wanted to learn Spain. Ooh, boy. I went, yeah, I, I, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know. So we learned it. I learned it the best I could from the real book and practice, and I would just sit there for like hours and put the metronome or the record. And we had a rehearsal because we were worried about it. Just, well, just awful. It's a train wreck. <laughs> just a train wreck. Ed, Ed was playing guitar. Ed Smith was playing guitar. So luckily, she goes, well, you guys will have to just get your heads together because we're doing it. Wow. Oh, okay. And it and it worked. And we never did song again. Oh <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try, try to do that Latin bass here, you know, with the, uh, it worked. Somehow it just worked. Must have been the excitement of the big PA or something. Or wow. we were scared and we did it and it worked and we were so happy. I was so happy. We are never going to play that song again. <laughs> Man. And Jim, how about you? That's a, that's a really tough one. I think one of the most fun gigs I've ever had was when I first joined Janima Magnus and we played the Portland Blues Festival in Portland, Oregon. And the way they had it set up, they had a stage on one end and then a stage on the other. And in between was probably about sixty to 70,000 people. Wow. It was huge. And so they'd have an act on one stage and then everybody literally would just turn around and face the other stage and they'd have an act on that stage and then they'd turn around. and So kind of like Blues Fest, but a lot closer. Kind of like Blues Fest, but a huge. I mean, yeah. just absolutely enormous. Wow. And before we went on, I was I was new to all you know this. I was new to playing in front of that many people. And before we went on, Janova said to me, okay, you're not playing for the person in front of you. You're playing for those people way back there. So bring it. I'm Perspective, like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And uh, it's on YouTube. And sometimes I, I go back and I watch that. And I'm like, dang, we, we were killing that that day. We really socked it to him. It was fun. I love her uh, her philosophy and approach there. That, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot from her. You know, I, the, my time in Root Doctor prepared me for that gig really well because I learned how to play behind a singer due to playing with Freddie. 
That's a whole um, different thing. It's a whole different ball game. And, and the, the keyboard player that she had, so she had a guy for a long time, and then he left the band, and then she had an interim guy. And he was young and green and really good, but he had no experience playing behind a singer. And so she had hired me to play, before she had gotten that interim guy, she had hired me to play a couple gigs in the Midwest. And then in the meantime, she had gotten him. And she honored those gigs, which was really nice of her to do, that she had booked with me. And so she had been on the road with this kid for a couple months. And then she comes to the Midwest, and I play these four gigs with her. And uh, after those four gigs, they called me up. They're like, uh, do you want, this, want the gig? And I said, what happened to so-and-so? And they're like, oh, he's great, but he just doesn't know how to play behind a singer. He wow. just hadn't had that experience. He was stepping all over, and he was soloing for too long. He was playing too loud. And I'm like, thank you, Freddie, because you taught me how not to do that. Absolutely. Fred. He was he was a good teacher. He would tell you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Some, sometimes he, we, we would we'd be playing, and, and he might pull something out. Oh, I want to play this. I want to play this. Okay, great. I, I knew it because I just keep learning songs. And then sometimes the band would go in, and there's always a, it's always going to be a wrong chord. But I would telegraph that. I'd go, oh, oh. But one day he just let me have it, Mike. They, they don't know. You told them. You told them. You must get a big sign. Just play two notes or play a note till the bad part ends. They don't know. Smile yeah, through it. Don't tell the audience. The worse it, worse it is, mm-hmm. the more it's smile. I went, okay, that's it. I'll do it. There's another guy. The first time I really played with a singer, it was so long in the past. His name was Danny Hernandez. Oh, yeah. And that was uh, that was the first, one of the, not the first band, but the first band that worked all the time, every minute of every day. And he was the singer and the bass player, and you had to you had to watch him mm-hmm. all the time. Wow! And he would not—you don't know what he was going to do because again, he had so many songs rattling around. Plus, he had the power of the bass, you know. So he might—if things weren't going great at, at the bar, the last set might be just a minute and a half of thirty songs. Just okay, okay, I got it. Okay, I got it. Okay. <laughs> he was—he was good. He would—he would do whatever it took to entertain the crowd. He would just do it. Absolutely. He was a good guy to work with. Well, I, I want to thank both of you for being here for this episode. We are hopefully going to be able to get another one in. So until next time, we appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. And we will see you on the next edition of Time Signatures. This has been Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. For more information on cabs, visit capitalareablues.org. You can find this episode and past episodes at lccconnect.org. The Time Signatures theme song, Michigan Roads, is used by permission and was written by Root Doctor, featuring Freddie Cunningham. Until next time, keep on keeping the blues alive.